The business of culture, the culture of business, markets, media and technology, entrepreneurs, authors. Alas, this is an omnivorous show. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're just a consumer filling up the gas tank once or twice a week. You feel that. You also feel it at the grocery store. And when consumers feel those and all of a sudden a fill-up costs $60 instead of $35, you're going to cut back in other places. Another Rewind episode for you, featuring a deep dive into this bear market, how the decline of local journalism is endangering democracy. I explored the unlikely journey of a Minnesotan who catapulted himself from foster care and near homelessness to med school in less than a decade. Plus, from the Wayback Machine, some of my 2019 conversation with best-selling author Mitch Album about his humanitarian work in Haiti. Please do stay with us. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon & Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salomon & Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Catch Full Disclosure Podcasts in their entirety on NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts at link fulldradio.com. Again, fulldradio.com. Follow on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at handle fulldradio. We start with our recent special live episode with James River Writers about the national decline in local journalism, a pain felt acutely here in Virginia now that a hedge fund known for devouring and dismembering newspapers has its sights set on the parent of the Richmond Times-Dispatch. If you're just joining us, we're talking about the role of local journalism in a healthy democracy, an advocacy panel discussion through the James River Writers Organization here in Richmond, Virginia. My guests are Michael Paul Williams, Pulitzer Prize-winning columnist with the Richmond Times-Dispatch, Shireen Azimi with the Institute for Nonprofit News, and Mallory Perryman. She's a professor of journalism at the VCU Robertson School. Is it too cute of me to discuss login fatigue? Right, We saw Netflix kind of capitulate a couple of weeks ago and start a stock market route and saying that many people out there, look, our numbers might not have been as hail as possible because many people are mooching on one another's uh, logins. And every time I want to read a great story, Dr. Perryman, you know, I hit up against the two article, three article paywall and I am a consumer of news and I subscribe to various newspapers and I give to my member station and I give to PBS. But at some point, it kind of becomes ridiculous when you consider you have Spotify, Netflix, three or four newspaper subscriptions, public radio, public TV, and everybody is hitting you up along the way. Uh, what's going on? And, and is there a better mousetrap? So this is a really interesting question as we were talking about different news consumption habits, especially among different demographic groups. So news has been in for a reckoning for some time with changing consumption habits, and most people you know, blame the digital era and, you know, everything going online, but it's actually broadcast. You really need to look at for the reckoning that is soon to be upon us as you realize that the age of broadcast news consumers is, is much, much older um, than the median age of the United States. Young people do not tune in <laughs> to broadcast news. They do not watch the local morning news, except for they all seem to know who Andrew Frieden is. He's weirdly a celebrity in my my classes. Everybody's a big Andrew Frieden fan. I am too, but um, <laughs> it just always struck me as kind of random. Um, but they they're not they're not appointment viewers. They don't they don't even have you know they they can't even bother to get an antenna to go in there on their TV and watch it for free. Um, and they don't they don't really they watch videos of course, but on TikTok and they're certainly not looking for news there and they don't want it there. I'll tell you that. Um, so you've got this whole you've got this whole generation coming up with a very different consumption habit. But I'll tell you what, there is hope. These young folks uh, are really into um, brands. So not necessarily consumer brands. They they trust people more than they trust organizations. They they like Andrew Frieden, right? But they don't, I mean, if I ask them about their feelings about NBC 12, I'm not sure they feel so strongly about it. They gravitate towards people that they like and they like to listen to. They don't necessarily have to share their opinions. They just find them interesting and they'll follow what they have to say. So they will tune in and they will 
they will watch and they will read, but they're very selective about the voices that they're listening to. More so the people, the bylines seem to matter to them a little bit more than the actual organizations. I think the organizations are very caught up in this idea of media for them, but the people that they like, the journalists, and I don't know if they can think of them as journalists as much as they think of them as investigators or truth tellers, or which is kind of what journalists are, but nice. maybe maybe a rebrand there as well. Um, but you are seeing a little bit of that. So I, I don't know that, you know, these kids are not going to pay for every subscription under the sun and have be breaking down paywalls left and right, but they are paying attention. It's just that they're paying attention in a little bit different way than we're used to. Michael, what do you think about that? I mean, time was you, you know, I would say that an association with something like the Miami Herald or the New York Times or the Boston Globe would have meant so much to me. But now that you've really established your name on your own, you have a widely followed Twitter handle, people can connect to you on LinkedIn or whatever channels you're on. They can opt into you and kind of synthetically build their own newspaper with their favorite bylines and experts and people from ESPN, people from across the planet tracking demography, Pew, INN. Has that given you some sort of uh, uh, inoculation from the vagaries of the newspaper business? Uh, no, I'm not nearly that big enough. But um, the, Mallory raises some interesting points that I hadn't thought of. Um, she probably knows that the Times-Dispatch, several years ago, got into the meteorology business wholesale. Weather used to be something we covered ad hoc. Whoever happened to have that particular shift had to make some calls to the National Weather Service, and we just kind of winged it. And um, a few years ago, we hired a, a gentleman named John Boyer, and he was our first real meteorologist. And um, he left, and now we have Sean Sublet. But we, you know, it, when we hired John Boyer, when we hired a meteorologist, there were a lot of... Um, puzzling, puzzled looks in the newsroom. But now you can't imagine a newspaper without one because of climate change. So it's a real thing now. So maybe that's part of what's going on with Andrew Frieden. Something else I thought of when Mallory was talking, it was like I'm a big basketball fan. And they keep saying the NBA is a star-driven league. And that's what journalism has become. I mean, in our celebrity culture, I mean, just think about how... We, Donald Trump was a celebrity who got elected president. He didn't get elected president because he was a statesman or a politician. And that's just how we roll generationally and, and culturally now. And, and I guess people move toward names they know more so than institutions, where it's institutions, I guess to Mallory's point, used to be the thing. Now people select the people from the New York Times that they dig and, and, and the Washington Post and various news organizations. So... It's just, I don't know if we've adjusted as an industry to all of these. We need someone to really study all this and kind of give meaning to it. Well, they I like you, Michael, so don't worry. <laughs> I have a comment from attendee Martha Steger to the panelists and attendees. She writes, I agree we've had a generational problem for some time. Even 22 to 23 years ago in teaching a VCU communications class, I asked students where they got their news and the majority said Facebook. And I got to tell you, when I was first invited here and I gave a lecture at the Robertson School and I wanted to break an ice, break the ice with these millennials, I go, what do you guys watch on TV? It, you know, it was Judy Crenshaw's class, I think, eight years ago. And they all look around like, mister, we don't watch TV. You know, one one's landlord threw in Fios and an old used TV. And that's got to change your, I mean, I mean, fast forward now and, and, and Shireen, it's all mobile. I wanted to use this transition to ask you how the radio and TV world are being disrupted in this, because in public broadcasting, at least that's decidedly not for profit, but they haven't been nearly as aggressive uh, versus the likes of Netflix or Spotify or Stitcher or the for-profit platforms, the apps that are really extracting the rents on the tablet and the smartphone. I mean, we see most of our publications are digital first, but most of them are print, right? That you read them in some way. But I will say more and more are getting into podcasts and a handful are, are radio and some are even actual public media uh, members as well. The interesting thing now is, right, you can even listen in your car because your car is Wi-Fi enabled or you can connect your phone. So you could have a subscription to Sirius and be listening to the news on Sirius or whatever other so I am curious to see how that affects. I think our members are starting to wonder what other formats they, they should be in. But Mallory, to your point, you know, younger people are not watching news on television and they're for the most part really not listening to it on the radio. So whether that's going to come back around, I don't know. But one interesting thing we've seen is that our members have been trying to reach people where they are. So for example, during the pandemic, 
some of the members started using text messaging because they realized that in certain, uh, especially in urban neighborhoods where there was a lower income households who didn't necessarily have Wi-Fi in their apartments, but they needed to know things like where to get masks or where the food bank was, was serving out food, where to find COVID information. So they started a text messaging service where the reporters were then directly communicating with the readers and the readers could send in questions and the reporters would answer them. And they started getting thousands of, of chains going back and forth, whether that's financially viable is another question. Um, but it really earned them um, the loyalty of a lot of listeners and viewers. We've also seen more recently WhatsApp being used by the members because a lot of um, immigrants are not necessarily using, they're not even really on Facebook and Twitter as much. They're using WhatsApp to communicate, right? It's, a, it's an app on your phone. It's a cheap way of communicating both with your home country and with people in this country. So some of our members are using WhatsApp to send out their newsletters. So I think that the formats will continue to change. And maybe the question is not, you know, what should we do about radio and TV, but what are we doing to keep pace with people's consumption habits? Dr. Perryman, uh, I'm never one to resist the urge to quote a lyric, especially from the 80s. Uh, I believe the children are the future. You teach them well and let them lead the way. And I think about students and your students a lot. I'm an, uh, an adjunct, a journalist in residence at the University of Richmond's Robin School. And when I have students come and approach me and discuss how writing is going to be involved in their careers or broadcast work, a lot of times it's for journalist-adjacent stuff, such as brand management or going into a company and doing a private label podcast. How do you, with, a, with an honest face, look at a 20-year-old and say, yes, I'm going to guide you into a journalism career. There's so little visibility. There's no social contract. There's no guarantee that anybody can promote you into a, a living wage, much less a, a serious, sustainable career. Um, to be totally honest with you, I am totally honest with them. I My students very often do not go into journalism. In fact, I would say probably right now about 70% of our graduates are not actually, or they're, or they're even their first jobs, they might stay for like a two-year contract and then they usually up and leave. And it's for so many reasons, burnout, um, the hours are terrible and the pay, I mean, the pay is just, I mean, this isn't a living wage for a lot of these, these people. I mean, even in a small market, it's just, it's crumbs. I mean, they can, they can now make more money working at Starbucks. And so it helps me to let them know that it is <laughs> sort of a thankless, you have to, it's a calling for a lot of them, right? They have to really believe in what they're doing. Um, and I, I let them know right from the beginning that every skill that they're learning is going to come in handy, no matter what they do. And in the worst case scenario, they leave and they're an excellent writer and they're a good storyteller and they have an appreciation for journalism that they didn't have before. And maybe they go out there and fight for it. And that's what I ask. I'm like, if you're not going to practice it, at least fight for it. Um, because there's, you, you don't have to you don't have to suffer in the newsroom if it's not what you want to do, but I have to be realistic with them at this point. It is a very difficult career path. Um, and some of them do it and they love it. And I have some who are super successful and they do work their way up the ladder and they find a place they really love and they, and they find a good newsroom. But I would say probably about three out of four of them do not. <laughs> um, they do find great jobs. I'll, I'll give them that. It's certainly not a I, I can truthfully tell them it's a worthwhile degree. I just can't tell them with a straight face that this is going to be a successful career for them because I, I do not know that. <laughs> um, I can hope it, but I don't know it. Stay with us. Full disclosure, we're doing a rewind episode with recent highlights. As the U.S. stock market descended into bear market territory, a decline of at least 20%, I called Caleb Silver, the editor of Investopedia to discuss how the Federal Reserve will have to solve the pressing problem of inflation, something this economy hasn't truly faced in four decades. Game this out for me, Caleb. If the economy were to suddenly collapse, if, God forbid, another virulent COVID strain or stock market crash would have the Fed not obsessing about high inflation, but suddenly a free-falling economy, don't you think they'd take rates back to zero and, and we'd back in this codependency all over again? Yeah, well, that's the thing. They don't want to get into this cycle of dependency where the Fed has to come rescue the economy every time it hits it in, goes into a tailspin. 
But really, that's the world we live in right now. What else are they going to do? What else can they do to help calm the markets? So that's kind of it. They have to either become buyers again of government bonds or mortgage-backed assets. And right now, they're sellers. They're putting those back into the market. Who's I mean, they, they assembled a $9 trillion balance sheet. I mean, people think about the headline of the Fed taking rates to zero. But then on top of that, in the pandemic, they went out and bought trillions of dollars of bonds to help real estate, first-time homeowners and real estate investors and the stock market and the bond market. Yeah, that's the thing. Do they, do they have to do that every single time? That doesn't really sound like the Fed's mandate, which is to manage monetary policy, keep inflation in check, and make sure the labor market's strong. The labor market's strong. It's just not strong enough because employers, small businesses, or even big businesses can't find enough workers. Now they're dealing with wage inflation. The worker finally has the upper hand for the first time in I don't know how many years, decades. So by just lowering rates every time something goes wrong and becoming a buyer of government bonds again, it puts them into that moral hazard where that's the expectation, but that just might be the way things are because there is no other solution right now. The, the bull market we've been experiencing for the past 20 odd years, I know there have been a couple of little mini bears in there, kind of cute little mini bears in there, except for the great financial crisis, is because the Fed has enabled these low interest rates and enabled investors to take a lot of risk and allowed companies to take a lot of risk when borrowing costs are zero or almost zero percent. Why not? I'm going to flog this stat forever, but I believe at maybe a majority of the years of this century have been an emergency interest rate policy for the Federal Reserve. And that isn't yeah. normal. You have people out there arguing that, well, it is at a time when you can tolerate chronically low interest rates. There's a, a surplus of international savings. The Chinese want our bonds. There are boomers who are retiring and their bonds coming due and people want to park in bonds. And so the Fed can afford to be super dovish and super lax for too long. And there was that school of thought that we're just never going to really see early 80s vintage inflation ever again. What happens when the biggest buyers of U.S. government bonds, and I'm talking about big pension funds, I'm talking about sovereign wealth funds, I'm talking about Japan, even China, when they stop buying U.S. bonds, when they look less attractive, that is going to be a very troubling time for the U.S. economy because we need buyers, right? And the Fed has been the buyer, the buyer of last resort. If the Fed was willing to buy, all those other buyers were willing to buy. If the Fed becomes a seller, those other countries that are experiencing their own economic issues and their own economic slowdowns, they think twice about whether they want to own government bonds, especially U.S. government bonds. At the same time, and you quoted Mohammed el and I'll quote him again, sometimes they're the cleanest dirty shirt in the hamper, and that is the best place to park your assets because there is no other alternative that seems stable. That could still be the case, but there's other alternatives that are emerging all the time right now. And you got to worry when these big buyers stop buying or think that there's something else that's more attractive to put their money, that's going to be a really interesting dynamic for the US economy. Can you explain crowding out, you know, to go back to Econ 101 or finance or investing 101, that when the Fed is out there sweetening the pot on uh, quote unquote risk free yields, why would you put the money to work in the stock market or in real estate or even in hiring people? Yeah, that's exactly what's happened. That's a, it's crowding out. It's what we call a crowded trade. So if the Fed is been, has been buying bonds and keeping interest rates low, they are making it more attractive for investors to take on risk. When they take that away, all of a sudden you have to think twice about where you're going to put your money, where you're going to make that trade, and all the money goes to the usually the same place. You see, you talked about the the rally in energy prices and the rally in energy stocks. That's kind of been where the money is because we're in a commodity bull market right now. So that's the crowded trade. Is that going to is that going to last for a long time? We have gas prices again at record highs on average across the country. We have oil prices north of one hundred and five dollars a barrel. That's been the crowded trade. When does that disappear? Well, it disappears when that demand disappears, but we haven't seen that quite yet. Uh, talk to me about that. You know, your ears were burning. Gas prices—that's a daily print that everybody sees on the boulevard, on the avenue, uh, indicative of you know uh, again triple-digit crude oil, the war premium. With uh, Russia and Ukraine, you have very icy relations between uh, the Biden administration and Saudi Arabia, which used to be able to pry open the spigots and kind of rescue us. This unfortunate dependency persists in spite of what we experienced in 2008, in spite of what we experienced during the hostage crisis or the early 70s. The price of oil can still take the U.S. economy hostage. Absolutely, because 
It is the one thing we do every week, whether you're a small business owner and you're filling up your fleet of vans to make deliveries, or whether you own a big multinational company that has to you know, hire freight to transport goods, or whether you're just a consumer filling up the gas tank once or twice a week, you feel that. You also feel it at the grocery store. I, th- I always find it interesting that the Fed focuses on core inflation, which strips out energy and food prices. Guess what? Those are the things we spend money on every single week. So I don't know why we strip those out. We feel those. And when consumers feel those, and all of a sudden a fill-up costs $60 instead of $35, you're going to cut back in other places. Where are you going to cut back? You're going to cut back in discretionary spending. That means travel. That means clothes that you don't necessarily need that you may have wanted. That means the services part of the economy, which employs so many people. So the economy is like like the human body. You twist your ankle. You start limping around, then your back starts to hurt after a while. Then you start making adjustments because your back starts to hurt, and then your hip hurts after a while. So you can't fix one part of the economy or address one part of the economic problem without it affecting another part. It's all connected, as they say on the wire. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We are talking to Investopedia's Caleb Silver. Do stay with us. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts at link fulldradio.com. Please subscribe, rate us, rave about us, tell your mom about us, and of course, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, the works at Full D Radio. If you're just joining us, my guest is Caleb Silver. He is editor-in-chief of Investopedia and Past Lives. He was Uh, at CNN, where he ran business news. He was senior producer for The Situation Room with Wolf Blitzer and executive producer of CNNMoney.com. There is this quote uh, that is ascribed to you uh, from Caleb Silver. Charlie Munger, who runs Berkshire Hathaway with Warren Buffett, you said, once told you that he has no patience in life for people who don't have the capacity to change. I think about this as an investor and as an editor every day. The world changes, and history rarely repeats itself in investing in finance realms. Every situation and era is unique, and we need to be able to adapt as investors if we want to realize our goals. It's hard, isn't it? Because you want to look back at benchmarks. You want to be able to rely on that you know, fabled nine and a half percent a year average return of the stock market if I leave it there and let dividends reinvest. But there is no guarantee. No, there is no guarantee. And I just saw Charlie Munger, God bless him, 98 years young with Warren Buffett, 91 years young at the uh, Berkshire Hathaway shareholder meeting. They're still talking the same book. Now, they've done very well. They're ultra billionaires right now. But why do I think about that quote? Because you have to be able to have the capacity to change. And it's so hard because we are animals. We have animal spirits that are trying to run our minds and tell us, no, things are going to get back together. Things are going to get better again. We know the stock market's going to rally. We're going to be off to the races anytime soon. Or I'd love that stock. I don't want to let go of it. You have to lose the emotional attachment and calm your animal spirits as an investor. Otherwise, you're never going to be able to really build wealth over the long term. And it's very hard when your money has been working in growth stocks, when you've owned all the big giants and they've been delivering great returns for you over the years, and you're facing this period like we are now where it just doesn't look as bright going forward. You have to move your money to other places. You have to make those adjustments. It's hard to do that. One, it takes that emotional strength to be able to do it. And also, you need to make the time to do it. Most retail investors they have their money passively invested in a 401k or a SEP account or an IRA. They don't want to make moves. They don't even know where their money is. But if you're not rebalancing every quarter or at least twice a year, and you're not really surveying what's worked for you and what's not and what the future looks like, you're never going to be able to take advantage when the market makes its moves like it did in the past six months. So case in point, you tried telling an investor right now who's all starry-eyed about the last decade and Tesla and Netflix and growth and Bitcoin and you know, NFTs. We didn't even get into the esoterica. You try sitting that investor down and saying, okay, now it's time to focus on, let's say, emerging markets, which haven't done anything over 15 years, or value, or international value. It's like telling a a, a 10-year-old to drink milk and stay in school and do homework. Yeah. Nobody likes to hear that. But the thing is, there's always a bull market somewhere. So right now, it happens to be in commodities. Now, you may not be that type of investor that wants to invest in fossil fuel companies or in mining companies. And I totally get that. I feel that way as well. But you got to pay attention to what markets are working right now. So the US stock market is doing terribly right now. 
guess what markets are doing well? Those that have a heavy concentration of energy and mining companies. And that could be Canada. It's doing a little bit better than the US. Brazil, which is the economy in Brazil is in terrible shape. The stock market's in great shape. The common denominator with the markets, the global markets that are doing well right now, they have a very low concentration of growth and tech. They have a very high concentration of value. They have a very high concentration of commodities. So that's where the bull market is right now. Will that, how long will that last? We're going to see because there seems to be unlimited demand right now. We keep you know, drilling for more oil, we keep building new steel plants. And that seems to be the way things are going to go for the next few years. As an investor, you have to say to yourself, maybe I don't want to own the dirty asset, so to speak, but I do want to participate in the rally and get out of this tailspin of growth stocks, which can't seem to find their footing right now. You have to be able to make those tough decisions. You have to have the capacity to change. And it's so hard because our animal spirits and our emotional attachment to the stocks that have delivered so such great returns for us is so deep and strong. It's very hard to break that. Well, let me ask you, can you build a better mousetrap than the Standard & Poor's 500 index? I'm quoting the late Jack Bogle, famously investor inventor of the modern day index fund, you know, synonymous with Vanguard, which has trillions and trillions in assets, that you don't have to invest more than, say, the S&P 500. You see, famously, it derives more than half of its revenue, these benchmark United States multinationals from abroad. You get the benefit of U.S. liquidity and transparency. You don't have to get exotic and go and buy an emerging markets index or a developed market index. And that's certainly been advantageous over the last 15 years while emerging markets have had their lost decade and a half. But people forget that the United States had its lost decade to start this century when emerging markets were roaring. And so there is a zigzag factor. Yeah, you, the S&P 500 gives you that exposure. But when you look at the concentration, since it's a market-weighted index, and that means it's heavily tilted towards market caps, the company with large market caps, and you know which ones they are, Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, Tesla, it's about 20%, 22% technology and growth. 2% of it is oil and energy stocks, but that's been the best performing uh, part of the market right now. So yes, the S&P 500 gives you that broad exposure, but it's still heavily weighted like a seesaw towards the big growth stocks that were the story for the past 10 to 15 years. That's not necessarily going to be the story going forward. Now, is Apple going to absolutely crash? Absolutely not. Apple makes great products. It's a multi-trillion dollar company. It's going to do well, but it doesn't have the growth propellers that it had in the past. So you have to look at where that is. And if you can't get that through the S&P 500, because the concentration is so heavily leaned towards technology, you have to look at other indexes where you can possibly do better. Some of those are, again, oil and energy indexes, if you have the stomach for it, or if you have the capacity or the consciousness to be able to invest in those companies. But you can also look outside the US to emerging markets that are doing well right now, like the ones that I mentioned. Full disclosure, stay with us. You can, of course, listen to Full Disclosure episodes in their entirety on all fine podcatchers, including NPR, NPR One, Spotify, and, of course, Apple Podcasts. Here's the link, fulldradio.com. Please subscribe, rate us, and recommend the show to friends and family and coworkers. If you are just joining us, we're doing a Full Disclosure Rewind. We take you next to med school student Michael Kelly, who reflected on how he overcame poverty in a broken foster care system to find purpose, stability, and community in higher education. Joining me is Michael Kelly. He's a medical student, class of 2025 at the University of Minnesota Twin Cities. You may have heard his story on LinkedIn where he had a viral post, uh, what was it, in 2020? I mean, during the thick of the pandemic. Eight years ago, I was living in a cold garage eating food out of a shoebox. Seven years ago, I was placed in foster care. Six years ago, I was searching for stability and acceptance in a new home and school. If I take you to the day that you graduated with honors from St. John's University as its first neuroscience major and a first-generation college student. But most importantly, I'm graduating with a family of nearly 1,000 classmates and finally, a place I can call home. How are you, sir? I'm doing great, Robin. Thanks for having me. That caught everybody's eyes and it got hundreds of thousands of likes. It sure and, did. Uh, more than 31,000 comments. Uh, tell me what was going through your mind when you posted it. I guess it was overwhelming gratitude and you took it to LinkedIn. Right. I was very excited that I graduated college. It's always been a dream of mine to make that an accomplishment. And I posted it at 1 a.m. one night. And even though I had my phone charging, 
on the nightstand. I woke up and it was barely charged because of the amount of notifications I got. I had phone calls, I had emails, I had LinkedIn notifications. My phone was glitching. It, it was very unexpected. It was not something I intended to happen. I was just grateful. And, you know, LinkedIn's a place to share your accomplishments professionally. And that was what I did. I thought I just shared, you know, a common thing that many students do across the United States. And for some reason, my story hit it off. Michael, now you are, are not even 25 yet, I understand. Correct. I'm 24 years old. So it says in your bio, you graduated from St. John's University, where it says a Duluth, Minnesota East High School graduate, Michael Kelly, was placed in foster care at age 15 and ended up being shuttled through three different homes during the course of his high school years. I want you to take me back, if you can, to when you first experienced um, this kind of Maslowian volatility. You didn't have security. You didn't have comfort. You didn't have a place to call home. I can't imagine somebody being shuttled in and out of foster care in the already trying high school years. Right. Well, I had it a lot better off than a lot of other foster youth out there. There's foster youth that jumped through 30 plus homes. Uh, For me, it wasn't quite that many. Um, You know, at the age of 15, I was placed into the foster care system. I was placed with my uncle and aunt, very fortunate, but I was separated from my sisters who did experience Mm -hmm. 15 plus foster homes apiece, um, which is just unreal. Um, And before attending college, I'd moved over 15 times and attended five different schools due to different instabilities in my life. Um, And I remember... I remember the day that I was put into foster care. You know, the guardian at Lightham uh, came to my school uh, to inform me that I would not be going home that night, but instead entering foster care. And then at that time, the odds of becoming homeless significantly increased. And then by the age of 18, I was homeless, you know, trying to navigate the summer before college. And then all throughout college, I never had a place to really call home other than St. John's and all the extracurriculars they involved me with that provided housing, fooding during breaks and such. How did this happen? How did you, I mean, when did volatility break? You talked about your sister. I mean, going back to elementary school, I can't imagine, um, you know, we, we, we talk about the various things you need, a breakfast, a comfortable home, security, the other things to be able to attend to the higher order priorities of arithmetic, reading, science projects, and the like. When did you first experience that rupture. Your parents got divorced when you were seven. And so there was you and your sister. How many siblings? I have a twin sister and a younger sister. So you were a first grader when you learned of this divorce? Yeah, I think I was in first grade, if not second grade. Um, I was quite young and it was traumatizing. I, I remember I had to stay with my grandparents. I was separated from my sisters at that point. I lived with my father at, at his mom's house and my sisters lived with my mother at her mom's house. And, you know, ever since that point in time, things just became very disjointed. And uh, we never knew when we were going to be together, who we were going to be with. You know, there was mutual custody, but it it was always changing. Michael, do you recall hunger or food insecurity or clothing or these other things as a young child? You know, I, I did grow up in a lower socioeconomic status, but I did not experience the need for or the loss of um, clothing or lack of food necessarily. But I did experience living up in a in a garage at a point, and I did store my sh- my food in a, a shoebox for various reasons and different instabilities. You know, growing up with my parents, th- that was the end result. Um, I think the biggest challenge was just navigating through different houses, never having a real place called home to me. It was always just the next house, you know, the next school, the next neighborhood, the next community. And so I never really felt like I fit in. That was the biggest challenge I had to overcome as a child. So what were the societal interventions? I mean, school is some degree of a safety net. Child services is a safety net. I mean, you have to have some sort of red flag at school for someone to be able to swoop in and assess the situation. You know, believe it or not, I think it went on for way too long. My parents divorced at age seven. I was put in a foster care at age 15. There was eight years of dysfunction during that time. Unfortunately, the dysfunction continued into foster care. But that that eight years for potential intervention, you know, I, I, I think should have been a smaller gap of time. There was, I had therapists, I had family counselors that talked to us as a family. I, I talked to counselors at school, but there was never that step taken to really put me into foster care and outside of the dysfunction of my my parents' homes. Um, and, and so there, there were supports, but the supports did everything other 
than what they were supposed to. They helped me continue on the road I was I was heading on with my with my family and just trying to keep that family unit together. But sometimes that's not the right answer. Sometimes you need to have a larger implementation into the the system, I guess. I, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah well, Michael, tell me about middle school and high school. I'm curious here because thinking back and now that I see my contemporaries at reunions and various things and they admit to me that they were dealing with... Um, uh, parental abuse or hunger at home, that there were some fail-safes. For example, I, I had never realized uh, for much of middle school how important the the breakfast, the free breakfast program was for people who got there earlier, who didn't have that first meal of the day. I had never realized how important lunch shaming, <laughs> lunch shaming <laughs> that happened behind the scenes, just having by dint of two lines, right? One free mm-hmm. and reduced and one for the kids who were paying cash. And then it being a spectacle, especially if if there was a cashier having to cross off your name or you have to borrow money from a teacher or there were you've read about these things debts that students could potentially go hungry if their parents don't pay off their school lunch debt right right terrible things for sure and i i was one of those kids that experienced that i had the free lunches and it was it was shameful to an extent my friends knew about it i couldn't explain it it's just something i needed in order to eat and i remember my place were you know filled three times as full as theirs i would just have piles of bread with peanut butter on them to fill myself up because of how hungry I, I was at times. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Michael Kelly. He's a medical school at the University of Minnesota, Twin Cities, anticipated graduation class of 2025. What's notable is that 10 years ago, he was in and out of foster care and he was experiencing hunger and homelessness and borderline homelessness. And this is the story of how he found his voice and how he found purpose and hope and uh, one of the best comebacks on LinkedIn, I got to tell you. Uh, so let's start with that. What is If I'm sitting next to you at a wedding or a bar mitzvah, what is that one thing, that moment, that inflection, that pivot point, which I just, you know, I had the luxury of just hating high school point blank because it was full of angst and hormones and peer pressure and everything. You had all of these other hierarchy of needs stressors on top of that. Right, right. Well, you know, at a point... I realized when I, I had to move between high schools and I had to go into a brand new community and experience a lot of those judgments and stigma that came from the new high school. And I just didn't feel like I fit in. In your LinkedIn post, in your very viral LinkedIn post of 2020, you posted, six years ago, I was searching for stability and acceptance in a new home and school. Five years ago, I moved for the 16th time into my fifth school district. Four years ago, I was accepted into St. John's University with little social and cultural capital, but with great ambition to succeed. Tell me about your college process. How do you even get your head around college and having to maybe keep a job when you know you, you turn 16 and hustle through high school and be a, a student learner and an earner and an applicant to college? Right. It, it was you know a huge challenge for me. I had my social workers that had me sit down, write out five applications to local colleges. I went to their favorite one, which was St. John's University. Very, very grateful I went there. Um, and I ended up going through the college experience, something that only 10% of foster youth actually get to do, you know, only 3% of those 10. But wait, you got to walk me back to high school. I mean, how did you pay attention to your grades? How did you, I mean, something as basic as fees for SATs or AP tests, right? Uh, Fees for the college applications. And I imagine you had a job. Mm -hmm. I worked as a cook in a restaurant. I also did gardening work and lawn care for my neighbors. Um, yeah, I worked. So what, what, walk me back. What was a day like? What was a typical day as a 16 or 17 year old like? You know, um, after foster care, I, I decided again that I wanted a better life for myself. And so I, I thought the best outlet to do that was out of my foster home and in the school. So I joined the exec board. I became very involved in my school. I be, joined like 15 clubs in high school and I would get there at five, six in the morning. I wouldn't leave till five, six at night come home, I'd either go to work or I'd, you know, study. And I just really thought that the best version of myself was to do the best I could in school. You know, back in elementary school, I was actually in special education. I was way behind in reading, way behind in math, and school was not a priority for me. And I I thought, you know, that maybe school would be the outlet I needed to overcome this dysfunction. And so I just got super involved. You know, I met people. I, I think it's, I always say it's half the tests you take and half the hands you shake. And really the hands I sh- shook and the people I met in high school really put me on a trajectory for a, a life of academic. And 
a career in medicine, you know, they got me involved in hospital volunteerism, you know, getting me involved in the community, making me feel like I was important. Did you have to go from after school to the job? Often I did. Often I did. Yeah, I would. <laughs> I had long days. I had very long days. Yeah, again, I would go to school at five or six in the morning I'd come back, uh, eat a snack, go to work, come back, you know, 10 p.m. at night, study, do the same thing the next day. Weekends. Now, of, would you avail yourself of school lunches? You know, I, I would just fill up with school lunches. Again, I had the privilege of having the paid, what are they called? Uh, <laughs> um, free and free, reduced lunch. Free, Yeah, free reduced lunches. And that's what got me through the day. I would just eat, 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 and then have a snack when I got home to my foster home and continue on. Luckily, I worked as a cook, so I could snake, snag a few fries here and there. Uh, and that's what got me through. Full disclosure, Rewind, you are listening to some of my recent chat with Michael Kelly, a med school student who is only a decade removed from near homelessness. Finally, from the Wayback Machine, some of my 2019 conversation with best-selling author Mitch Album about his humanitarian work in Haiti, which has become a second home for him. Joining me from NPR New York is Mitch Album, one of the best-selling authors in history. Seven number one New York Times bestsellers, more than 40 million copies sold worldwide. Uh, obviously, you know Tuesdays with Maury being the best-selling memoir of all time. Uh, you might not know that Mitch founded nine charities in Detroit and operates the Have Faith Haiti Orphanage in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, which you visit monthly and which is the linchpin of his latest, uh, Finding Chica, a Little Girl, an Earthquake, and the Making of a Family. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. I do want to uh, kind of get at something metaphorical that I can't get my head around. Um, Chica was born into kind of the disruption of this this massive cosmic event that Americans don't seem to remember. I remember this time because my son was born in the vicinity of the, the Haiti earthquake, but it's like the earth shook. She's a, a newborn. Her house falls apart. She spends her first few days in a field on leaves and ends up in a in a roundabout way with you in Detroit. Uh, when you think back to that, I don't, I don't know if metaphor describes that, if serendipity, if fate, if uh, this was a... This child was destined to meet you and your wife. I don't know. There's a lot of that. Uh, for me, it was 20 years from when I found out that my old professor, Maury Schwartz, was dying from Lou Gehrig's disease. It was 20 years almost to the week that I found out that Chica uh, had an, a brain tumor that would prove to be inoperable. So I look at that, for me, as like, uh, wow, there's some kind of symmetry there. And and yes, you're right. Uh, she was born three days before the earthquake, and um, I came down a couple weeks after the earthquake. And you know, the path from Detroit, Michigan, where I live, to um, outside of Port-au-Prince, Haiti, where she was born, and how we ended up together, and ultimately uh, as part of a family, is pretty, uh, <laughs> pretty convoluted and pretty unusual. But I find that most of the things in my life that have been significant have sort of been like that. You could call them accidents, or if you really trace it back, you can kind of say, well, maybe it was meant to be. Uh, what is it about Haiti? I, I always, you know, everybody struggles with this. This is, yeah, I grew up in Miami. We have yeah. a significant Haitian population in North Miami, people I went to high school with. And this place is a stone's throw from the Keys. You can go to the Dominican Republic very easily, and Haiti's on the other right. side. And it is one of the poorest and most miserable places on the planet. If, if you just took away violence and corruption, just the, the infant mortality rate, the lack of access to uh, water, running water, um, sanitation, uh, uh, the, the, the level of deforestation, hunger, cronyism, I, I believe it's the second poorest country on the planet. That's right. And right here in our backyard. Right. And it was a function of the slave trade several centuries ago with the French. And this is just this... Um, uh, you know, it's so easy to ignore. And I just remember when I heard about the earthquake. I think I was on. I was. Th I think I was on the commuter train outside of New York. I didn't even know that Haiti was seismically unstable, and this had to have been the worst injury upon decades and decades of injury. That earthquake in less than forty-five seconds killed almost three hundred thousand people, uh, which is almost three percent of Haiti's population. Can you imagine if an earthquake? In America, killed three percent of the population. That would be you know, like nine million people dead in less than a minute, and it left almost ten percent of their population homeless. Now, when I say homeless, 
they went from, you know, living in very, very poor conditions or tents or things like that to having nothing, uh, just rubble. And when I went down there a couple weeks after the earthquake, um, and it was only because I, there was a pastor who came to me who said that he had had this orphanage and he thought it had been destroyed and he couldn't get any messages through because, you know, there was no phone lines or anything. And I knew uh, Senator Carl Levin, who was on the Armed Services Committee, and he was able to clear a 10-minute window mm. for us to fly a little plane from Detroit, Michigan into Port-au-Prince, Haiti. We had a 10-minute window to land. And when we got out, you know, we were amongst the first civilians to be there who, you know, because you couldn't fly in commercially. And what I saw will never leave me. And when you say what it is about Haiti, well, it wasn't its history. It was what I saw in the streets there after that earthquake, people wandering around like zombies covered in this white dust, uh, clawing their way through uh, rubble piles of buildings, pulling out rocks and searching for bodies that might be in there, scrounging for any little water that might be found from a dirty puddle in the street because it was the only water they could get. Uh, and then this orphanage, which hadn't been destroyed but had been overrun uh, by people who had jumped the walls and thought, you know, they might bring food here. It's an orphanage. And so there were hundreds of people sleeping in the dirt. And it was it was so chaotic and so hot and so your eyes were stinging from the dust. And, and yet here were these children, beautiful children, happy uh, laughing, teasing, playing mm. with you. And at uh, one point in the middle of all this, I was standing looking at the chaos and I had my arms down at my side and I looked down and I felt these two hands in my hands. And I looked down and there's a little boy on one side, a little girl on the next. And they just were holding my hands and they kind of walked me forward. And I always look sort of symbolically as that was, they were sort of walking me into their world and Hades' world. Um, and eventually Chica's world. And uh, I've been there ever since. I've been in Haiti now coming upon January. Mm. will be 10 years uh, every single month I've been there. And uh, I go for four or five days every month to operate the orphanage and oversee it. Obviously, we have staff down there. We have 52 children that we take care of. Uh, we educate and we don't adopt anybody out or anything. It's it's an orphanage in, in name, but it's not doesn't follow that traditional model. We educate them, nurture them, feed them, take care of them medically. These are kids who have been abandoned or left behind or parents have passed away. And uh, our goal is to get them all college educated and then back to Haiti to make their country better and maybe one day put us out of business. So that's my involvement with Haiti. You wrote this in Finding Chica. I knew this. When children were brought to our gate, I had to look past the appearances because there were so many and so much need. And for every child we could say yes to, even now there are 10 to whom we cannot. The majority of Haitians live on less than $2 a day, and many have no power, no clean water, and must rely on charcoal for cooking. For every 1,000 babies born, 80 will die before their fifth birthday. And I think that's like 10 times the infant mortality rate of, right. of the United States. Right. Yeah, it's just, it's tragic. Uh, and as you pointed out, you know, there's a storied history to this tragedy. It goes back several hundred years. Uh, Haiti was the first independent, free black republic uh, in, in, in the Western Hemisphere and, uh, you know, outside of Africa and paid a price for it ever since. In 1804, they overthrew the French and threw them out and said, no, this is our country and this is how we're going to live free. And from that point forward, they were a pariah because uh, America didn't want to deal with them because we, we had our own slaves and we didn't want to give them any ideas. And a lot of other countries didn't want to deal with them the same way. So they were like an, an island, literally, you know, that nobody wanted to trade with or deal with. And they had to spend untold millions of dollars that they gave back to the French on the promise that the French wouldn't come back and invade them again. So their economy was crippled right from the beginning. And then corruption set in, and it's been a series of tragedies ever since. But the people are so warm and full of life and, and loving, and especially the children, that I defy anybody who comes down to Haiti to not have a smile on their face when they think of, of the people that they've met there, no matter how harsh the conditions. Well, here's another footnote. I noticed that according to the World Bank, um, Haiti has a human development index ranking of 168 out of 189 countries worldwide. A child born today in Haiti will be only 45% as productive when she grows up as she would be if she enjoyed full education and health. And uh, this other footnote in it 
Um, I noticed that the World Bank noted that recovery efforts continue more than three years after Hurricane Matthew hit the country in 2016, which caused losses and damages estimated at a third of GDP. Yeah. How many knocks can this country take? <laughs> I mean, you, you, you know, you, you talk about companies in my line of work that are just chronically that are approaching liquidation or takeover. Does the world, does the hemisphere have a broader responsibility uh, to help these guys out? I mean, it, I, I, I'm trying to get my head around what it would cost to, to bring running water to this country, what it would cost to eradicate polio, eradicate cholera, and some of the other low-hanging fruit of, of kind of this, this uh, nation that is just time and time and time again knocked down to the lowest rungs of poverty. Yeah. Well, it, it also suffers a triple whammy in that it's fallen out of favor with people who give that kind of money uh, because after the earthquake, there was a lot of attention and then a lot of money was raised and a good deal of it didn't get to where it was supposed to go. And politics got involved and people who were critical of the Clintons uh, criticized their organization because they say, you know, a lot of money was raised in the Clinton Foundation and it didn't get to where it was supposed to go in Haiti and there were corrupt people. And so <laughs> the irony is they need the most help. And now they have people saying, oh, don't help Haiti. You know, you, you, the money will never go there. And, 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 and you obviously know what our current president thinks of Haiti. He used an expletive to describe it. Mm. And so this is a country that people forget we occupied for about 20 years uh, in the early part of the 20th century. So we, we ran it. And so we have some responsibility, not to mention, as you pointed out, it's a stone's throw off of our coast. And yet it gets ignored constantly. And, and uh, you know, and every one of those tragedies that you brought up leaves in its wake untold amounts of children who are left behind or abandoned. You mentioned Hurricane Matthew. The last eight kids that we've taken in are from Jeremy, uh, which is the hardest hit area in Haiti by Hurricane Matthew. And we flew there and uh, said we could take, the first time we could take three girls, we had spaces for three young girls, and 59 children were brought to us from as far away as two hours away in flatbed trucks, jammed into a truck, just to, to try to be considered for those three spots. And they didn't even really know who we were. They mm. just heard that there was this orphanage in Port-au-Prince that was offering shelter, and that's how many kids we had to interview, and we could only take three. So... It's tragic. And through all of that, somehow Chica made her way to us. Sometimes I wonder, you know, there's so many kids, would we have said no to her? But her mother died in uh, giving birth to a baby brother in that same cinder block house that had collapsed during the earthquake. And we were told her father was dead and that she had nobody. And she certainly qualified. And so we, we took her in. That was author Mitch Album closing out our latest installment of Full Disclosure Rewind. Again, you can catch all of these conversations in their entirety on your favorite podcatcher, whether NPR, One, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts at link fullderadio.com. Again, fullderadio.com. Special thanks to Claire Morgan at Notterly and multimedia producer Evan Hunter. Please subscribe, rate, and recommend Full Disclosure to friends and fam. A shout-out to our broadcast listeners on WVTF Radio IQ, Virginia's NPR news station. You can catch me weekly on both MSNBC and NPR's Here and Now. Please message me to run this show on your air. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening and back with you next week.